Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kia ora and welcome. From RNZ National, here's our changing world with Veronica Maduna and Alison Balance. Graptolites are a group of plankton species that became extinct some 400 million years ago. But during their heydays, they were so abundant throughout the world's oceans that their signature in the geological record has been used to determine the boundaries between geological time periods. Now paleontologists have been able to use graptolites to study extinctions, with some surprising results. To find out more, Veronica gets to have a look at a slab of graptolite fossils with paleontologists James Crampton and Roger Cooper. Now this particular piece, you've actually found this. This is one of yours. Yes, this this slab that we're looking at came from the Aorangi mine area that's just south of West Haven Inlet in northwest Nelson. It's a slab of black shale and it's about 30 centimetres long and it actually contains the skeletons of probably about 30 or 40 individual graptolites. They are colonial animals that lived in the ocean, floated around the ocean, part of the plankton, what we call the macroplankton. These um, specimens on this slab, for example, you can see the serrations on the edge of that branch. It looks a bit like a sword, doesn't it? It looks like a hacksaw blade. And each serration represents a separate tube, and in each tube there was a separate polyp, and the polyps had tentacles and they fed by filtering um, particles out of the water mass. So they're now extinct, but they have a long history as a group of species? Yes, they lasted for about 70 million years from their early ones to the late ones. These, what we're looking at here are graptoloids, these ones that floated in the uh, ocean water. They do have a related group that lived attached to the sea floor. They lived for longer. They died out at the end of the Paleozoic era. These uh, specimens, the graptoloids, they just lasted from the base of the Ordovician period to the end of the Silurian. In fact, in the early Devonian was when they went extinct. So how many millions of years ago? That was, um, well, approximately 400 million years ago. They started about 480 and they finished about 410 so million. 70 million About on 70. Earth. That was the duration. That's how long they lived in the floating around the oceans. And um, I should perhaps describe their size. They range, as you can see, from just about one centimetre in maximum dimension up to four or five centimetres on the slab. They did, in fact, grow larger, but these are all broken. See how the, the stipes are broken at the ends? Mm-hmm. So we're really only looking at fragments of colonies. That's a complete colony, that U-shaped one. Um, so that's one that consisted of two branches growing up like a V. So um, it's very difficult to describe them because there's nothing living in the plankton today that closely resembles them. I was just going to ask you that. You know, Why would you choose something that's been extinct for so long to look at extinction rates and triggers of extinction? Why, why this group of species? It's because several features about graphites makes them very, very useful for uh, paleontologists. 
One is that because they were plankton, the species are very widely distributed. They got floated around the world. The second point is that they evolved very rapidly. The average lifespan of a graptolite species is only one million years, which means there's a rapid turnover when you're looking at the rock sequence. That helps you to date the rocks because the faunas are constantly changing. So by the composition of the species present, we can work out the exact age of the rock. And the third reason is that they're relatively common in rocks of this age. They occur very widely. They're easily found, especially in this black shale. Another more general thing is that actually to study extinction, you can't study extinction in the things that are living today because they're not extinct. To study extinction, you actually have to look at things that are now dead. And obviously one of our missions today is to try and stop things going extinct. So obviously paleontology, really the only way you can try and look at the big questions of extinction is to look back into the fossil record and look at groups that have become extinct. The lovely thing about these, these graptoloids is that uh, Roger Cooper and Pete Sadler compiled this amazing data set through the entire lifespan of this major group of organisms that, that were a major component of the global ecosystem for 70 million years right from the day they first appeared in the fossil record right through to the very end of the group through the entire lifespan so you can study what was going on through the, the lifespan of a whole major ecological group. So in that database you can literally see when new species are emerging, how long they've been around, when they disappeared? Yes, because we have a unique data set and we also now have the use of a uh, recently developed computer program to help us with these correlations. We can get very fine resolution in time. We, we can now date the precise time of origination of a species and the time it went extinct. And by precise, I mean I'm talking in geological terms here. It's within, say, about 30,000 years, which is much finer than we can normally achieve in a fossil record. They live for about a million years on average, the longest species live for about 14 million years. But because we've got such fine control on it, we now can follow the, the extinction rate itself. And um, that's what our research has been based on. You found some surprising results, or surprising in the sense of how we think about extinctions generally. Can you talk me through what you found? There's several aspects to the new things that have been found. I mean, one is just simply the resolution with which we can resolve the timing of when species were arising and going extinct. You know, we're going back 400 million years and we can resolve things to 30,000-year timescale, which is almost unprecedented in the fossil record that old. But traditionally, there's been a very widespread idea in paleontology and more recently in, in biology, this idea that species at any time, however long a species has been around, it has an equal probability of going extinct. This has been called the Red Queen model, and that label has been used in all sorts of different ways now and, and Actually, Roger and I don't like using it anymore. But anyway, there's this idea. And, and the interpretation of that was even if, if you're a species that's been around for 10 million years versus a species that's only been around for 100,000 years, you both are competing with each other all the time. You're both having to adapt the whole time to keep competing with each other. And at any moment, both of you have equal probability of going extinct. So extinction doesn't favour the species that have been around for a long time versus those that are newly evolved or vice versa. And that idea has uh, become quite deeply entrenched in both paleontological literature and now biological literature. What we're finding with, with these new data is, in fact, that most of the time, actually, it's the newly evolved species are far more vulnerable to extinction, which is sort of not surprising in a way. So in other words, nature is throwing out new species all the time. New things are evolving 
new species are appearing, but actually they don't cut the mustard. The species that have been around for a long time have already established themselves in the environment. They have a bigger geographic range. They have a bigger ecological footprint. It's what's called incumbency. You know, they're, they're the residents on the block. And actually they can outcompete the newly evolved species most of the time. But what we found is that in very short bursts, that changes. The whole situation changes so that either newly evolved species compete just as well as the long-established species, or even, perhaps in extreme cases, actually the old species, the ones that have been around longest, are far more vulnerable to extinction. And again, we're resolving this at geologically very short time intervals on, on a few tens of thousands of years, or much finer. I mean, that's what we can resolve it down to. It might have been happening in reality faster than that, but that these switches in in what we call selective regimes, so you select against the long-lived species or you select against the short-lived species, we find those switches are, are geologically very rapid and nobody's really detected these before. Let's at this point bring the environmental conditions into it because that's what makes the difference between whether having been around is an advantage or a disadvantage. You've looked at, in parallel to looking at how these species have emerged and disappeared, mm. you've looked at what the world around them has been doing. Mm. How does that match up? We know that halfway through the lifespan of the Graptoloids, there was a major change in world climate from global greenhouse, so generally much warmer than today with no significant ice sheets, to an ice house climate when there were big ice sheets coming and going, much like we see in the world today, you know, the ice ages and the interglacials and ice ages. And what we find is that major extinctions and the change in this selection happens, is coincident with big coolings, global coolings. So each big cooling that came along, that selective regime changed, and suddenly you went from the young species being disadvantaged to either all species being disadvantaged or actually the older species being disadvantaged. And, and so it's related to these abrupt coolings in the environment. Is that about that change being more radical, so that if you've been around for a while, if you've established yourself, mm. you're the incumbent, mm. you've also adapted to your particular conditions tightly? So if there's a more radical change coming along, you're actually not as fit? That's exactly what our um, results are suggesting. As James says, the background pattern of extinction, that prevails right through their lifespan, but it's punctuated by these climatic events that occurred in the Silurian period, over a period of about 30 million years. There were a number of uh, severe cold spikes in the, in the climate, and during those cold periods, the extinction rate shot up radically many times the background value, but at the same time the selectivity of extinction changed from favouring the old species to favouring the new species. And the reason for that is, um, we think is most likely, that if the climate change is strong enough, then the old species are no longer adapted to the climate in which they live. They actually evolved at some earlier time for a different climate they then become quite disadvantaged and the new species which are evolving in the new climatic regime, they have the advantage and so they start to proliferate and the old ones start to become extinct. So their climate window might be closer to what is going on than the old species? Yes, so what our results suggest is that species will tolerate a certain level of climatic variability, the older species, and within those certain limits they have the advantage. But once the environmental change passes a certain threshold, then the whole regime changes and the whole extinction regime changes and we see these short spikes where the environmental change passes a certain threshold. In this work, can you pinpoint temperature as a significant or even the main trigger? 
Uh, yes, we do have some isotopic data to tell us directly what the temperature was doing. And through the first half of their lifespan in the Ordovician, the temperature was generally considerably warmer than the present. But not only was it warmer, the climate was much more uniform um, in what we call a greenhouse world, where the temperatures at the surface waters at the equator were not very much warmer than they were in polar regions. It's hard for us to imagine that, but that's how, that's how it was. And then when you switch to this um, ice house regime, you get strongly zoned climate, and the temperature generally, on average, is colder. So, sure, temperature plays a major role, but not directly. We think that the temperature affects the extinction rates through its effect on ocean circulation patterns, and that affects the microphytoplankton dramatically, and it's the microphytoplankton, which are the food resource of the graptolites. So it's a sort of a chain effect. We know they could tolerate cold and warm temperatures because species exist in high latitudes and low latitudes that graptolite species do, even during the cold periods. So they can tolerate the temperature, but what they can't tolerate is their food supply disappearing or changing so dramatically that they no longer can use it. So can you, when you look at that database, can you perhaps during a, a period where climate conditions are relatively stable, can you see the same species more widely distributed, more globally distributed? Yes. Yeah, and then in the, during the change times that there was more of a, a regional speciation? There's certainly, in the Ordovician uh, period, species tend to be very widespread. However, having said that, we still do recognise faunal provinces which are characterised by having a distinctive assemblage of species different from other parts of the world. So there was some other differentiating mechanism going on even when the climate uh, was relatively uniform. And during the Silurian, when it was strongly zoned, there's quite good evidence that species uh, tended to characterise distinct climatic zones following temperature bands. Now what does that, if anything, tell us about now? Right now, a number of people are saying we're in the sixth great extinction on the planet. I mean, we know there's been f typically people recognise five mass extinctions in the history of Earth and people are saying we're now in the sixth one of those extinctions. We believe what we're showing for these plankton will definitely have relevance to how we understand extinction. The trouble is, it's one group and it's in, in the deep past. We need to get more examples. This is the most highly resolved we've ever looked at this sort of extinction. We need to be doing that with other groups and other different time periods, different sorts of ecological groups. But all that said, the implication is that um, if we really are seeing radical climate change starting sort of now, we can expect to see the different groups will become prone to extinction than what has been the case in the recent past on the planet. And obviously we can't point to a particular species and say, oh, you're more likely to go extinct than you are. But on a general and a probabilistic sort of scale, we can look at groups of organisms and say, yes, we expect this to change. Would you go as far as saying that we should be most worried about the species that have been around for the longest time? Maybe. And maybe. <laughs> no, po possibly. Look, we, we don't know. But obviously the implication is we may be transitioning from a situation where young species, geologic young species, were more vulnerable. We, we might even transition into that situation where the species that have been around for a long time that have the, perhaps have the greatest ecological footprint might be the ones that are most vulnerable to extinction. What we would expect from our research is that we have just come through a major glaciation. 20,000 years ago, Europe and Britain, uh, northern Europe and so on, were covered under ice. So it was a major event. 
we would think that that was an event comparable with the major cold periods in the Silurian that we're looking at. One of these cold periods, incidentally, did drive a global extinction, one of the big five, and during that mass extinction, 75% of all species on Earth, most of them being marine species, uh, became extinct. And the Graptolite group almost entirely was wiped out. Just a few lineages survived to give rise to the Silurian period. So it has a dramatic effect on the, on the fauna. So we're coming out of one of those big events, and we're moving into a warmer period. And the point James was making is that we would be moving from a time when old species were vulnerable to a time when the newer species will become more vulnerable. So where we are on that spectrum at the moment is very difficult to say because we don't really have enough precision in our control on estimating exactly what the climatic conditions were um, in the past. It's, it's all done by proxies. We have to use other sources of information to tell us about it. Whereas today, of course, we've got very precise information about what's happened over the last 30, 30 million years. So it's hard to um, draw any firm conclusions. But um, the other point uh, which I think James made is that what we're looking at here are just background probabilities. They would sit on top of the much more immediate causes of extinction, the risks of extinction, brought about by um, change of habitat, for example, with the effect of human activity. Those are the immediate causes of extinction. What we're looking at is a sort of an overall background that affects everything. So it does have an influence, but it may not be the primary cause of extinction. One of the other things we see for the first time in our, our results is that even after these big extinctions, and it might take somewhere between perhaps 5 and 10 million years for the whole ecosystem, the global ecosystem, to recover back up to the species diversity it had before. But what we see is this change in extinction selectivity actually happens much faster than that, so that the flips in extinction selectivity happen within a few tens of thousands of years, even though it then takes the ecosystem a long, long time to recover. So there's quite complex patterns in there about how extinction works at a big scale that we're really... As, as you can hear, we're still grappling with the implications of this and, and will be for a long time probably, trying to understand really how extinction works on a big scale. And it is of concern now because, I mean, thinking of the plankton, you know, the plankton are, are major players in the world ecosystem today in terms of sequestering carbon dioxide, you know, drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and locking it away and so on. And the whole base of the marine food chain is based on these plankton. So it's actually really important for us to try and understand it at a big scale how extinction works through geological timescales. Do you think this idea of the switches, that the vulnerability to extinction triggers changes from newer emerging species being more vulnerable during certain times and then older, more established species becoming more vulnerable, will this cause biologists, geologists, paleontologists, a bit of a headache in terms of reconsidering the theories back to the Red Queen theory? Absolutely. The Red Queen, is, uh, there's a lot of discussion, and, and I would say sometimes confused discussion around that. One of the big debates in biology at the moment is how, in terms of diversity and, and extinction and, and speciation rates, what role, the relative roles of just straight environmental factors versus species competition, biological factors. So, so what's more important? Is it the species competing with each other for resources or is it just more important that what's happening in global climate or external environmental factors? And so obviously our data play right into that. And certainly we wouldn't draw any general conclusions on that one yet, but 
If I had to go out on a limb, I would say something. It looks like extinction is more influenced by the environmental factors, but speciation is more driven by competition between species. But that's, that's I'm going right out on a limb saying that. It's early days, but we need to do more of these sorts of studies, and, and we're getting to, to grips with that. But it's that certainly our results will have significant implications in that whole debate about what controls biodiversity, how many species can live in one place at one time, and what controls how many species can live in that place at that time. Could I bring you back to the Graptolite? Do you know what caused the extinction in the end, the complete extinction? The complete demise of the group? Uh, well, that's actually an easy question to answer. The answer is we don't know. We know that the group went extinct at a time when marine predators were growing in numbers and in size in the oceans, big eurypterids, bony fish and so on. And we can surmise that maybe uh, they decided graptolites were a good food resource, and that so in other words it was predation that drove the group extinct. But to be honest, we don't really know. And that was Roger Cooper, a paleontologist at GNS Science. You also heard from James Scrampton, who's also GNS Science and Victoria University. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. And you can find more stories on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Ka kite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.